It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Opinion Podcast from The Times. I'm Philip Webster. I edit the Times Red Box Bulletin and the Red Box website. Today we have two peers of the realm. Danny Finkelstein, Times columnist and associate editor. In another place, he is known as Lord Finkelstein Pinner. And we have Stuart Wood, former advisor to Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband, and currently sitting on the front bench in the Lords, where he is known as Lord Wood of Anfield. So you can guess where his colours are nailed. But uh, Danny could easily be called Lord Finkelstein of Stamford Bridge. Issues around the response to terrorism in Europe, dealing with unprecedented migration flows and UK involvement in bringing the Syrian conflict to an end should be the overwhelming priorities for our government. Given the seriousness and complexity of these issues, David Cameron should seek all party support for postponing the European Union referendum until 2019. During the first years of this government, it was argued that we needed to borrow more because we were in a recession. Now we aren't in one. It should follow that this is the time to borrow less. We can't continue with a massive structural deficit. Right. Here we go. Stuart Wood coming up with a very revolutionary proposal that the, uh, that the EU referendum should be put off until 2019 because of everything else that's happening at the moment, including Syrian crisis, events in Paris and the lot. Stuart, do you think he'd, he'd have a better chance of winning it if he delayed it till 2019? Well, I think that's difficult to say, difficult to tell at this point, and frankly, it's sort of beside the point. I mean, in a funny way, I think the Syrian crisis and the migration crisis in one way are very bad for the pro-European argument because they show that Schengen, for example, is probably not up to the task. So some of the key institutions of the EU, I think, are, are left wanting. But on the other hand, what we're seeing day after day is a kind of newfound solidarity between the British Prime Minister and European counterparts, a sense that you can only tackle these things mm. in a continental way. So I, I think it's difficult to work out whether it would be won or lost if you delayed it. It's two real arguments. One is the overwhelming concentration of diplomatic and political capital that's needed for the military situation in Syria. And my guess is that we will be going to, towards airstrikes um, in the next few week, days or weeks combined with the migration, continuing migration crisis, which will probably get worse if the airstrikes intensify. All that should be the overwhelming focus. 
And there is no way that we can either as a country focus on the referendum. I mean, let's face it, a referendum campaign will require mm. political allegiances to divide in ways that are unfamiliar. It'll, it'll, it'll require people to be immersed in a campaign. But they'll also, in the run-up to the referendum, David Cameron is supposed to be negotiating and, and playing pretty hardball with, with countries with which he's supposed to be in total solidarity for the purposes of Syria and the crises that emanate from that. I think that cocktail of of diplomatic and political uh, energies is, 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 is pretty impossible to pull off. And I think that's the reason we have to take a tough decision. I think Cameron could say, here's a specific date in 2019. I think he could call other parties to support it. And, I, and I'd argue for him to get support from the Labour Party. Danny, what do you think? I mean, the, it, it's, a, it's a novel proposition. Yes, it's novel. It's utterly impossible and it won't happen. But uh, there, there is an argument for having a later European referendum. Uh, but funnily enough, not really the one that Stuart's made, although that was, it was interesting. I, was not, I wasn't familiar with it. But the argument really is that originally when David Cameron wanted to renegotiate with the European Union, he said it in the context that he expected the whole of the European Union to be engaged in negotiations about the Eurozone and their mm. future relationship with each exactly, other. Yeah. And he felt that this would force a treaty negotiation and Britain could be part of it. And it would have leverage provided by this general negotiation uh, that normally it didn't have. And that's what started him down the route of thinking a bigger renegotiation was possible than I think is going to prove the case. And the reason that he couldn't align these two things is because there was a direct party and uh, sort of right uh, mm. wing imperative, which is that large numbers of people on the right of British politics for whom David Cameron relies, uh, on whom David Cameron relies to win general elections, um, were insistent on this. And he, I don't think he could have won an election without this promise. Now, having made it, he absolutely has to deliver it. And I think that um, precisely because those people who want to leave will perceive the troubles in the European Union as giving them an extra opportunity to make their case. And I noticed that, you know, it doesn't really mean very much that, I suppose, but little fluctuations in the uh, polling this week, you could see yes. that the impact... There has been one this week showing, yeah. uh, it, showing it, no ahead, yeah. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's... I don't think I take that that seriously structurally, but I think it does indicate that the, the noise of this type is not very good for the European Union. So th there's a, the argument that Stuart made has got force, although you know who's to know what will then happen in 2019? It's a bit like when everyone goes on holiday, they never can go on holiday because there's always something. And so there'll always be something that the Prime Minister should be doing. And in fact, Tony Blair's argument for the general election was, don't let this, these people, because they'll be so wrapped up in Europe, they won't be able to govern the country. And people saw that argument, they didn't accept it, and I don't think that they would accept it from David Cameron now, I mean, even less so. But it, it just strikes me, that taking up Stuart's argument, that we've got a, a European summit coming up in Brussels only a few weeks away. President Hollande, his mind is totally on other matters at the moment, as you'd understand. Is it not going to look rather strange if the EU sits down in December and starts talking about itself when it should be talk talking about a worldwide response well, to, certainly, uh, to ISIS. Certainly. I I've never been one of those people who expected an early referendum, and I think it'll, it'll go the distance because I think... David Cameron will need to show that he's doing everything he can to get the maximum terms and won't get such good terms that he'll be able to say, well, I've already won and we can go early. That That's, you know, my guess, obviously. And I think this increases it. I mean, even before the immediate Syrian and Paris crisis, talking to German diplomats, for example, they were saying, you know, the migration crisis is so big, no one's really talking about British terms. So I suspect he wouldn't have got that far anyway in December and now even more so. He's got plenty of flexibility so we're not talking about having this referendum 
right away and he doesn't need to have it next year either you know 2017 is quite a long way away 2017 is what he said originally uh, exactly and so i think he can still go there but i don't think he uh you know yes of course he can get labor agreement to almost anything i mean good good god knows what they'll say or agree to at the moment it's very difficult to work out where they are um (laughs) but can he get agreement on the right i agree that's that is that's definitely an an issue and that's why i think having as maximal uh, support of this across the parties is, is going to be important. And and the right, the Eurosceptic right, will always suspect funny funny business going on with any movement of the day. I take that point. But Do you think Labour look, would... would uh, you, you know what's going on a bit? I mean, I, I think, I think an argument in the name of national security, I think, would, would be... I mean, and to, to, would be... Would be quite likely to get their support. I, I think look, also this is partly an idea prompted by the briefings that have been going on about how the referendum will be early uh, summer next year. That strikes me as irrespective of the world context, a pretty ludicrously short timetable anyway. But put that to one side, let me, let me make another point about this. I actually think look, there is no issue like Europe for splitting the Tories down the middle. It has done for 150 years and it mm-hmm. will continue, continue to do it and it's, and it's going to do it in a serious way in the run-up to a referendum campaign. I think if we're in a position where we are engaged in military action, and who knows what the consequences of that will be, having a governing majority party that is split down the middle on, a, on another issue, I think actually harms us all rather than just harming conservatives' political interests. And I think that is an issue of sort of national interest rather than just of party interest. But, but I'll return to this point about can you imagine the negotiations in the next few months where... The, the table is sort of brimming over with issues arising from migration, terrorism, Syria, Schengen, etc., etc. And David Cameron is always trying to put his hand up in the meeting, saying, "There's another bundle of issues I really mm. need to talk about here." Now, I think that is—it's not a matter of being pro or anti-European. That is just fundamentally not in the European or national interest for that to be the case. There is at the bottom, I think, an ideological difference between us as well as a judgment issue, which is just the question of whether this is irrelevant secondary issue. It's not an irrelevant secondary issue. Our relationship with the European Union is pretty critical and it's right that we should actually have a deal with it. On balance I suspect in the end I will think that we should remain in the European Union. Uh, I certainly hope the terms are ones that will allow one to do so but I have been very sceptical about the way the European Union developed and our, has developed and our relationship with the European Union has been a, is, um, a massive and serious structural and strategic issue as well as being something you're quite right that is a big issue for the for the right, not an irrelevant issue for a party leader. Um, so these two re- things mean that this is very important. It's not secondary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the question of what overshadows what is partly a question of perception. Of course, if you think we should remain in the European Union, this whole thing is because UKIP are nutters and therefore we have to have a referendum because they won't shut well, up. But it's not really like that. And there, there is a huge amount of scepticism among the British po- uh, public. It's time that we uh, settled this issue. To um, uh, It's time that we saw what terms on which we can settle it and then made some sort of decisions and forced people like me to choose between two very difficult things, which is a European Union going in a direction that I've not been very supportive of and the idea of leaving, which I regard as a very, very big risk. It's time that we settled that. And so therefore, I think this is isn't secondary. Well, I, I just want to... I don't think it's secondary at all. I don't think it's a trivial issue at all. I think it's an issue of huge magnitude for our country. I, was, I think there should be a referendum. So this is this is, this is is an advocating delay, not because of the triviality of the decision about Europe, because precisely because of its magnitude. You can only have so many kind of 
continental existential questions on your plate at any one point. And I think at the moment we are about to enter a period where we will have, it's uncertain, but I think we should be prepared for politics to be dominated by these issues for a number of months. And I think that is the wrong context in which to think about I think if you were entirely free to settle the t- dating of the date of the referendum, we could have a conversation mm-hmm. about whether this was a particular distracting moment or whether it was less distracting than whatever might come up later in the parliament. We could have that discussion. And remember, there's also a political imperative. Of course, David Cameron doesn't want to have an issue, this in 2019, um, for obvious reasons. But truthfully, given the promise the Prime Minister made... Could lengthen his premiership, of course. And, yes, and the suspicion <laughs> that people have um, that, you know, that the, the, there'll never be such a referendum uh, and that the, that the uh, government is trying to fix it in order to have it at the time, which is most likely to keep us in. All those things, it's really not practical politics, even were it... You know, it's certainly an arresting idea and it certainly sure it's correct to draw our attention to just how much attention we'll need to spend on the issue of Syria that all having been said this isn't a practical proposition. I expect Stuart accepts it. I'm certainly being provocative here, but I, but I, I do think it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think it is. I, I think we're entering uncharted waters on a whole, on a on a collection of issues around Syria and the fallout of Syria, which, which affects Europe directly as well as us. And I think that's the reason for thinking about this. Could you and could you tell us where we is is today's Labour Party as full-hearted in support of the EU as the Labour Party of a year ago? It's a good question. I think I think. Slightly not, I think, is the answer to that. I mean, I've, I've, because of the I've, leader, uh, the general. I, don't, I mean, I don't. I mean, Jeremy's views have always been his views, and mm-hmm. I don't think. But he is the leader him, now. Him coming to become the becoming the leader has has converted people to anti-Europeanism or anything like that. But I, I, my sense is, I mean, Danny may may have a view on this too, that the left of the Labour Party is becoming much more sceptical of Europe. I don't mean anti-European, but much more worried about the democratic deficit problem, much more worried about the, the, the spectre of the European Central Bank and the Commission forcing countries like Greece and Portugal to take political arrangements because of economics rather than listening to local electorates. And, and that, that concern, yeah. the Daniel Hannan concern on the right, actually has a parallel on the left in a way yeah. I think three or four years ago it didn't. Yeah. And yeah. the Euro crisis created a little bit more antipathy towards Europe from the left and, and perhaps a significant more... Significant the union's more quite important to, uh, to yeah. Labour adopting its yeah. strongly pro-European course, stance and they, they the, now seem to be... I mean, the famous yeah. position taken up by Ron Todd in response to Jacques Delors, it was, it, it was the absolute critical point in the, yeah. in the Labour Party's... Um, Positioning, and 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 I, I, I do think um, obviously what happened in Greece that was the moment that uh, yeah as well as Ger- which which coincided and you know, with Jeremy Corbyn's uh, coincided I was about to say coincided not coincidentally um, with, which can't be right uh, with uh, coincided with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership uh, taking off and so. Um, there's definitely a move on the left, and that is actually quite serious. To uh, if it, if it took solid shape yeah, uh, and became an anti-European position that would actually be quite serious I think to we're the quite away from that i mean my guess is if you did a poll you'll probably do one in the next few weeks but the, the labor members are still pretty much pro-european but i think the numbers are, are sliding a bit right right that's my sense well look let's move on to uh, the second proposition and this is from danny in the week of the autumn statement keep the austerity path going yes i mean i don't regard um, austerity as an ideology. I just think it's mathematics. If uh, the country was willing to accept a big structural increase in taxation, uh, we could have a big structural increase in public expenditure. But I don't think that people are willing to accept that. And part of the reason they're not willing to accept it is it isn't a sensible thing to do in a global market economy. I don't think, um, you know, 
Stuart's often had very interesting ideas. I'm sorry if I'm anticipating your sorry. points, but about about the model of capitalism that we've chosen, that we could choose a different model. I don't think we are going to, and I don't think a very high level of taxation is consistent with the model of capitalism we've chosen. And so, therefore, I think that when we were in a, in a recession, people argue, you know, this is the wrong time to uh, reduce spending because uh, things are so bad. And now um, people are saying this is the wrong time to reduce expenditure because things are so good. I basically thought it was the right time to reduce expenditure before because we needed to get started on the structural deficit. And I still do. I think George Osborne's a classic Jekyll and Hyde character on this issue, because if you listen to him over the last five, six years, you think it's a matter of absolute theology that we should, we should rein in public spending incessantly. But actually what we've seen is... The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, first we had the Jekyll, George Osborne, which was very severe clamping down on public spending for the first two years, which unsurprisingly led, because Keynes is kind of still right, despite the fact we, we all are now told he's wrong, which unsurprisingly led to a slowdown of the economy and a, a, the slowest recovery we've, we've ever seen from a, from a massive downturn. Then he took the foot off, of, off the gas in the last three years of the last parliament, and we had a kind of mini Keynesian recovery, which we w- weren't allowed to call a mini Keynesian recovery. Then we resumed the kind of eye-watering posturing before the last election, and then after the election, surprise surprise the, the the shackles were loosened a little bit more so this is don't believe the hype this is not a matter of theology it's not a matter of arithmetic it's a matter of choices but there's two problems with this one is economics gets in the way and George Osborne October's deficit was the worst October during George Osborne's entire tenure as chancellor it's not for want of trying it's because of a number of things local authority borrowing being higher reclassification of housing associations government debt and and tax revenues still being softer than any of us would like, all these things combine to, to blow him off course. So what he has to do, and this is partly, I think, the rhetoric we're hearing from Danny and others in the run-up to the spending review, is um, uh, he has to cut, on, cut spending even more to hit this target, which has become so important. But, and look at the global context. The global context, British growth is pretty decent compared to others, but it is, it's now about 0.5%. Mm-hmm. Manufacturing is in contraction. Construction went down like 2.5%, I think, last, last month. There are 14 countries in the European Union who are suffering deflation. I, I, just as George Osborne, in my view, is wrong about the problem of welfare being a problem of worklessness, when in fact there's a problem of low pay, I think on the macroeconomics, he's mistaken to think that the problem is a, 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 an over, a, a kind of burgeoning state, big government. The problem is not that. The problem is lack of demand. And there is no economist in town who thinks that the appropriate answer to that is not some kind of uh, maintaining flexibility. So I don't argue for a doctrinaire position, but I think you have to be flexible about government stepping in to support demand. It's funny, because I, I, I think Labour's never been able to decide whether it thinks George Osborne is an ideologue or... Or a, or, or, or a pragmatist, and they've decided that the way to square the circle is by suggesting it's him that can't muck up his mind. Um, I, I've got, I'm relatively <laughs> clear. Uh, he, he's he's a 
He's, he's, a pra- he's a pragmatist who took the view that in, in 2010 that we had a structural deficit that we had to eliminate, we had the political will to do it, and we had to start doing it. It is not, in my view, the case at all that um, what he did in 2010 caused the... Uh, and nor is it, nor was it, for example, the OBR's view um, that it caused the slowdown that took place in 2011-2012, which was, of course, obviously the figures have shown were not exactly what we thought they were at the time, and there wasn't... The figures were, in fact, much better than we thought at the time anyway. So I regarded us as having made the only possible decision we could, which is that we're an economy that has got too much structural spending compared to how much tax we're prepared to raise in the long term. And we have to reduce the structural spending because we can't be borrowing so much in a boom and clearly that is where we are so just to a suggest boom, that, a boom yeah, well really? effective, percent growth I, I believe that we well we construction collapse in, in this in this this year 0.5 growth you're talking about quarter but we're, we're in in a year of course we are we, we're not we're not in a we're not in a uh, we're in a long-standing uh, uh, economic upturn of course we are and um the idea that at this point in the economic cycle we should be increasing spending and uh, rather than trying to reduce it to get down the structure is just totally irresponsible and it's what we did before which is we cannot take a structural decision to increase spending because we all like spending i've got absolutely you know i'm pro spending more money on the nhs i'm pro spending more money on the police i'm pro spending more money on the army i'm pro collecting my own dustbins you know the, the state collecting my dustbin uh you know i'm i'm I, i've got no ideological reason against it but it's just you've got to be able to pay for it and it's just a simple question of maths. Stuart, is, yep. isn't Labour in a bit of a bind here? Because um, Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn won the leadership on an anti-austerity ticket. Yeah. But one of the factors that was identified by the polls after the general election in Labour's defeat was that it was seen as soft on austerity. So how, how does, how does Labour square this particular circle in my personal view on on the election from someone who is sort of painfully on the inside of the the defeat at the election is that our problem was actually that we weren't clear about what our plan was Uh, and I think I mean it's easy in retrospect but I I don't think that's the same thing as saying that we weren't quite as hair-shirted about public spending as the Conservatives I think it's the absence of a plan which was reasoned through and presented in detail was the thing that probably hurt us in retrospect so um, and that's not to say it would have been I think think there's probably for example on, on, on capital spending on spending on public investment on trains transport and uh, and the buildings for public services, I think there was probably room for an argument to be made that we should have a different approach. One of my problems with George Osborne's approach is that his, his rules don't distinguish between kind of capital investment and current spending. And I think there's, I think there is a, I think there is a case to be made which the public can support, particularly at a time when borrowing rates are so low, which may be coming to an end. But anyway, uh, that that there is a distinction that, that sensible governing parties can, can make. So that that for me was one of the reasons that mm. we we had we had we had trouble. But I mean, just just to go back to Danny's point about about taking tough decisions. I mean, the problem is that we're living in a world where British exports are not doing well. We're living in a world where demand from sort of people who gen- countries that have generated big demand in the past seems to be slackening off. Where is the demand going to be coming from that sustains growth? We are ahead of other countries at the moment. It's not a boom, but we're slightly ahead. But I think George Osborne knows this can't last, right? We're only going to be ahead for a certain time. I think one of the reasons he's being so sort of monomaniacal about tax credits and finding, you know, welfare cuts from other parts of the welfare budget 
to, to substitute for tax credits because of his own party's revolt against it. One of the reasons he persists in doing that is because he knows he's got a short window in which he can make these incredibly tough decisions because the relatively benevolent economy that he has at the moment is, is, is probably not going to last for the next five years. So I think he anticipates precisely that this isn't going to be a long-lasting upturn. But that's my point. Right. But you so, said so, we were in the middle of a yes. long-lasting upturn. No, I, I didn't. I said we have been, we have been, there has been a long-lasting upturn. I'm not so sure it'll work. It'll, it'll continue to, uh, to, to, go, to carry on. And precisely because of that, at this moment, we should not be increasing spending. I, I've got absolutely, no, I'm not an economic forecaster, and I have absolutely clueless as to what the uh, future economic growth rate is going to be. I'm not making a forecast, but it's, you know, it's just common sense without being some great economic forecaster that you're not going to, that, that you, you're not going to remain immune from worldwide uh, wobbles forever because no government ever does. It happens over and over again uh, in history. So we know that that will come eventually. Uh, and when while the, the economy is growing, that's the moment where you've got to do what you can to bring expenditure in line with uh, your um, with with what you're prepared to to uh, to tax people. But now, if you're prepared to tax people more, by the way, my mathematical point doesn't hold. Right? It absolutely is a perfectly reasonable response to say we're going to have very big tax increases. But what, I, what's what's the arg- what's what's a theological argument or political argument for? Uh, surplus in the in the budget being in 2020 rather than 2023-2025? It's not a theological argument, it's just a question of try, trying to get us on a path whereby you can sensibly reach that point and uh, and, and people feel that it's something they can attain because this is a political exercise. And I was very struck reading about the row between Barack Obama and the Republicans mm. how, uh, in Congress. How incredibly difficult it proved for them to actually do anything. Even in the great in the in America, they nearly defaulted on their debt uh, because moving on expenditure and taxation is so incredibly hard. So this is not merely a um, a question of ideas and abstract thought. It's a question of practicality and political mood. You've got to capture the moment when you can do this. So my view was, one of the reasons why I thought the general election was so incredibly important was that um, you, you had to try to... W- Win power again while implementing a, par- a path of reducing the structural deficit. Extremely hard because we all like the things that more spending can bring you, uh, and therefore we all dislike any government that's going to reduce it. We boo it at, at Olympics and things like that. Uh, so we, we're against it, and it was very important to win again and then to use the political space that had been given to complete the task, so that we're now in a, we're but, then but in a position the, of not having a structural deficit. But what, we, what we've had for the last six years now is is, is is theology about targets and targets that are continually moved, rolled over, pushed back, uh, you know, disc- uh, little caveats drawn here and there. And that's what the next four or five years are going to look like if you, if you believe any macroeconomist. So this is, this is, this is, not, this is not sort of uh, finishing the task. This is kind of revisiting what the task is every six months when no, conditions change. it's making change. progress in, with a, in a pragmatic way. I, I've never been, you know, an ideological person particularly. I'm, I'm, I regard myself as, I suppose everyone does, that, but now I regard myself as a reasonably moderate and pragmatic and of course you know you you move politically to accept you can't for example pile on with tax credit uh, with the tax credit change unchanged when you can see there's so much opposition you have to tack to public opinion and you have to win the battle so i always say you know that the difference between ted heath and margaret thatcher on on unions was that ted heath lost and margaret thatcher won and there was no point losing 
I mean, I, th- I think there's an interesting point here about the, the politics of ideas in the Conservative Party because, as Danny said, I think the George Osborne position is you've got to win this battle, this is now the battle, you've got to win it. I think one of the most interesting things that any politician said in the last year or so is Heidi Allen, who had this wonderful line in her famous maiden speech when she said that the single-minded determination to achieve a surplus is betraying who we are, the Conservatives are. Now, I'm not saying that for cheap political point scoring. I think what's interesting about that is, I mean, for me, the last 40 years have seen the Conservatives move from a kind of portfolio of different values and positions on things to a kind of ruthless pursuit of one thing and one thing alone which is cutting the size of the state and and, and cool. I, I think i think in a way george osborne has doubled down on that at the same time as saying we've got to move to the center and being the workers party i think there's a kind of contradiction between the economics of his job and the strategy of his well, other job at the moment I can, can i to can to i make a cheap political point is this is there an element where george is timing things for his leadership a bit. He must be. I mean, we know that he's he's a master strategist. He he must have that in his mind. As Stuart says, there may be a you know a fairly narrow window where where well, this all comes right. I I think that there's definitely a conclusion that he and David Cameron drew in the last Parliament that it matters hugely when you do things and not just what you yeah. do. And so therefore definitely an aspect in the tax credit row uh, was uh, that those people who want transition were getting back the response and I think I think George Osborne used this to persuade people to vote with him the first time uh, do you want me to keep cutting tax credits as we get closer and closer to the election that's about the general election and probably not by coincidence also about the time right. that there'll be a leadership right. election too but those two things come together and there's definitely a question of timing in politics yes we've had a poll this week suggesting that uh, the Labour members who uh, voted for Jeremy Corbyn, still love him. They still think he's doing all right. We know, I speak to Labour MPs quite a lot, we know that some of them are in despair about the leadership. We can't let you get away without um, asking you whether you think Jeremy Corbyn is going to lead Labour into the next election. I think probably. That's my sense of it. I mean, we're a long way to go, but um, look, there's no doubt about it. There is a there is a, a gap between the Labour Party membership and the Parliamentary Labour Party in terms, not just in the le- leadership election, but in a continuing way. That's that's obvious to anyone. Uh, and and your fascinating polls showed that there is also a gap between the affection that late Jeremy has in, within the membership and, and 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 views of him in the country. That doesn't surprise me. You know, the size of it, I think, should be cause of concern. Uh, but but it doesn't surprise me. We're still very near a leadership election that he won by a country mile, and he succeeded in pulling people into the party to support him. And and since he's won, if you, if you think about it, I think pretty much he's paraded a lot of the positions that we knew he had before. So it doesn't surprise me that people who had faith in him have kept faith in him up to this right. point. The challenge is clear. It's a, it's a kind of larger version of the challenge that any opposition party has after a after a bad defeat, I think, which is how do you reconcile the affection for the leader and his agenda in the party to the country? And that's, right. and that's what you've got to reach out. And he, like any leader, has to start doing that. Final word to you, I, Danny. How long has he gone? Well, I think I think he will last for the election, probably. Um, but I think his, his only mistake would be not being left-wing enough. Uh, he's, what, he's not going to win the support of the parliamentary party because they disagree with him ideologically, not because they think he's useless. Uh, he's got to keep on board the people who elected him uh, because the parliamentary party will move against him at some point and he needs to be sure that he can win that contest. The only way that he can win that contest is by keeping faith with the people who elected him. So if I were Jeremy Corbyn, I would appoint all the people he's appointed. I'd be even stronger uh, with the views that he had. I wouldn't retreat on MI5 and police. Uh, I would 
um, press on uh, with the view that he's got because they're his views and he's not going to win uh, an election persuading John Mann or, um, or, or any of these other people or Simon Zanzuk that he's the guy because they don't think he is uh, and uh, his protection against them are that there are people who do support that position I don't think they can win a general election personally but they do so they also think this strategy is what's necessary for sweeping the country so I think they should press on with it and if I've got one criticism of him so far it is that he's been too hesitant about it not that he's been too advanced I mean we have to enter a phase now where Jeremy starts you know, making the weather through set piece, you know, speeches and uh, and set piece policy proposals. Um, so far, it's been very reactive in a way that's natural in the first few months, and particularly in a time of sort of national challenges of the sort we've got. But I mean, that that's when you you start to sort of see what the opposition's made of. I think when you set out your own agenda. My lords, thank you very much indeed to Stuart Wood and Daniel Finkelstein. Please visit thetimes.co.uk for further reading. Please subscribe to Redbox, thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. Thank you again for listening. Please come back next week. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.